welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. I don't know about you guys, uh, but there's this thing that I noticed my kids doing uh, that I realized that I, as an adult, uh, do as well. One of the things my kids will do often uh, is feign ignorance to avoid doing something they don't want to do. And, you know, one day I was sort of looking at my children and saying, why do you guys do that? Why do you guys pretend you don't know how to do something? You know very well how to do it so that you don't have to do it. And then I started looking at my own life going, oh no. How many times do I pretend not to know how to do things so that I don't have to do them, right? How many times have I asked my wife for an overly obtuse amount of instructions because in reality, what was really going on is I didn't want to do it. And I was trying to make it difficult for her to explain it to me, hoping subtly in the back of my mind that instead of explaining it to me, she'll just go, fine, I'll do it. Right? By, uh, my guess is that I am not the only one who has pulled this move in his life. I'm, I'm sure uh, that where you work, you have never done this. I'm sure that this has never happened to you, but it's just me. Or maybe not. Or maybe all of us know what this is. It's interesting because a lot of times when it comes to difficult portions of the Bible, portions of the Bible that seem hard to understand, we kind of do the same thing. We kind of punt. We kind of kick them away and go, you know what, if this part of the Bible is hard to understand, I'm going to just go ahead and ignore it. Because it's difficult. I don't really, uh, I don't really understand it, so it must not be important, so let's just move along. The passage that we come to today that we're going to read about today is very much one of those passages. It's a passage uh, that we are tempted to skip because the whole passage revolves around the idea of meat offered as a sacrifice to a false god. Now, most of us have never eaten meat sacrificed to a false god, and we are tempted to look at this passage and go, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Like, I don't eat meat sacrificed to false gods. None of my friends eat meat sacrificed to false gods. I don't think I've ever met anybody who's eaten meat sacrificed to false gods. So we're all good here. Let's carry on with our lives and move along. But if we do that, if we sort of glaze over this passage, if we sort of say, not my problem, not my thing, let's move along, I think we're going to miss something that's fairly important. We're going to miss something uh, that really is a key part of what it means to be a Christian. And so in order to understand this, I want to take just a few minutes to explain uh, what meat sacrificed to idols and and the way that sort of ancient cities worked. Uh, Because most of us get our meat uh, from Publix or Costco or Aldi or, you know, maybe if you're fancy, Whole Foods, right? Wherever you get your meat, you go to the store to get meat. And we sort of assume that's where meat has always come from. But 
in the ancient Near East, in the Mediterranean world, that wasn't the case. Uh, in the ancient uh, world, most of your meat, most of the meat that came into a city, the butchers were actually the priest. The priest of whatever gods were there in the city were the butchers. And so the uh, people would come in and they would bring their cattle in and they would either give it as a sacrifice or they would sell it to someone else to give as a sacrifice and they would take these cows or these lambs or these pigs or whatever it was that that deity demanded, they would bring it in and sacrifice it to the gods. So that meant that priests were butchers. They spent a large part of their day butchering these animals. And I don't mean that in like a coarse way. I mean like literally chopping them up in the appropriate ways that you would butcher something. And so most of the meat that people would eat in the town of Corinth and in towns across the Mediterranean uh, had its origin in the temples, had its origin in the places where people worshipped. And there were sort of two varieties of this. The first one was meat that came in as a sacrifice that they sacrificed, put in front of the fire and said, Oh Zeus, may you be honored with these ribs. And then as soon as they were done saying their piece about them, they would take them out and put them in the store. And so there's a pretty good racket, right, when you think about it. People brought in meat for free to the temples. They waved it over and said, this is Zeus's meat. And then they turned around and made money off of it by selling it to people who wanted to buy ribs or filet or sirloin or whatever cut of meat they wanted. That was sort of a common place for them to buy meat. But there was something else. Not only was there meat that had been uh, sacrificed to idols, there were also these temple meals. Because temples were sort of the city center, right? It was a combination of a church, a restaurant, and a club. And so when people would have parties, they would often throw parties at the temple. And so they would have these dinners, these meals that centered around the worship of the local deity, whether that was Zeus or Athena or whoever it was in your city that everybody worshipped, that was a place where you would go. And, and this passage, sometimes it becomes difficult because Paul is going to go back and forth between the meat that has just been waved over the fire and then sold for you to go home and cook, and the meals that people would eat at these temples, these sort of festivals. And there's one more piece of this that kind of ties in, and this is all going to become important in a second, so bear with me. Um, most poor people did not get to eat a lot of meat. Meat was sort of a luxury of the rich. And for many poor people, in the city of Corinth and in other cities around the Mediterranean, the only time that they had ever eaten meat was at a festival honoring their city's god. So in Corinth, uh, the local god was Aphrodite. So every year on Aphrodite Day, the priest would take that meat that they would normally sell on the market and they would give it away for free. So it was probably the one day a year that the poor people in the city got to eat meat. Now this creates an interesting connection. Because if you're a poor person in the city of Corinth, what is the one thing that eating meat is tied to in your mind? Aphrodite, right? The only time I get to eat meat is when I get to go to the Aphrodite party, the, the Christmas of Aphrodite, so to speak. And so all of these are playing in because you have people in the church of Corinth who are rich, who eat meat whenever they want. 
They like kebabs. They like whatever it is. You have people who are poor. You have people who come from a Jewish background. You have people who come from a Gentile background, from a non-Jewish background. You have all of this. And so the Christians came to Paul and said, Paul, can we eat any of this meat? Can we eat the, the meat that got waved over the fire and sold to us? Can we go to the parties at the temple? Can we eat stuff on Aphrodite Day? They were asking these questions. And they wanted one of two answers. And this is so much the same with us. The people wanted to know, either one, tell me exactly what I can eat, and then I'll go do that. Just give it to me straight. I want an exact definition. This meat good, that meat bad. Jesus will love you more if you eat that meat. Jesus won't like you if you eat this meat. Let's move on. They wanted definitive answers, or they didn't want any answers at all. They didn't want Paul to weigh in on this. They didn't want to be told what to do. How many times in our life, when it comes to things in our life, when it comes to our morals and our ethics, do we bounce back and forth, or do we tend towards one of these other things? I want an exact moral code that's written down where God tells me every decision I should make. And if I do that, God will love me more. Some of us tend towards that. Some of us want to know and want to live in a world where everything is very clean cut and God tells me how to make every decision. Others of us don't like that. Others of us hear that and go, no, I'd rather nobody, including God, tell me what to do. Right? We have the I'm a do me sort of view of things, right? I'll do me, you do you, don't tell me what to do. This is the fact and the case in Corinth, and this is the case in our life. Some of us either want an exact set of rules, or we want no rules at all. The Corinthians, some of them wanted an exact set of rules about what meat to eat, and some of them wanted no rules at all. How is Paul going to handle this? How is Paul, speaking under the inspiration of God, going to help the Corinthians to see? Well, that's exactly what we're going to find out this morning. So if you would, stand with me, and I'm going to read Paul's answer to these questions about what kind of meat they could eat. 1 Corinthians 8 says this, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offers to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. 
We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 2,000 years ago, and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So the people of Corinth come to Paul and they say, can we eat this meat that has been offered to idols? And Paul's answer is on the one hand, more complicated than we would like. And on the other hand, pointing at something deeper. Because Paul takes this occasion, this occasion of meat offered to idols, to, to make a deeper point. You see, most of us, want to talk about our flaws, our shortcomings. Let's put it honestly. We want to talk about our sins on a very surfacey level. Just the things that we do. And Paul takes this question of meat offered to idols, and he makes it about something much deeper in your heart and mind. What Paul tells us and reminds us is that you and I and the Corinthians are unwilling to give up our rights for the sake of loving others. You and I just not willing to give up our rights to love other people. That's the big idea that Paul's coming at. And so he starts by talking about what the Corinthians know. Because it was very clear that there were some in Corinth who were going, look, there's actually no such thing as Zeus. Right? We all know this. We all know that Zeus doesn't exist. So if somebody waves a piece of meat over a fire and says, this is dedicated to Zeus, they might as well be saying, this is dedicated to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Because it's not real, and it doesn't matter, right? I can hold up a piece of meat and say any nonsense I want, does it change its stakiness? No. So, guess what we should all do? Let's just eat meat and not worry about it, guys. And what's interesting is Paul does not tell those people, you're wrong. He doesn't say, hey guys, no, be cool, Zeus is real, and Zeus is going to be mad at you for saying that. No, he says, no, you're right, there really is no such thing as Zeus. But on the other hand, he critiques them pretty hard, doesn't he? He says, look, just because you know stuff, just because you know that Zeus isn't real, doesn't mean that you're being a good Christian. Just because you know a lot about the Bible doesn't mean that you are living according to what God says. It's interesting. One of the questions that you could ask about this passage is this. Is knowledge about God bad? Is knowledge about God that. Now, normally when I ask a rhetorical question like this, some of you have been around for a while, 
right? Know me, right? You know how I set up these rhetorical questions. And my answer is usually, well, of course not. Knowledge isn't bad. But you know what Paul says in this passage? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Knowledge about God can be detrimental to your spiritual life if it's not accompanied by love. The first few passages in this Bible, or the first few verses in this text, Paul says, look, just because you know stuff doesn't mean that you love God. You can know a lot about God and not love Him. And he sort of sets up a contrast and he says, look, if you know stuff, it doesn't necessarily make you any closer to God. But he doesn't set the opposite of that. He doesn't set the contrast up then with, but if you're ignorant about God, you will totally love him. That's not what he says, right? What he says is this. But if you love God, you will be known by God. The contrast that he's saying is, it's better to be known by God than to know a lot about God. For some of us, that's difficult. Because for some of us, we want to be able to study, figure God out, and take care of him. Ah, I know things about Jesus. I'm good to go. I know a lot about Jesus. I'm really good to go. Paul says, no, what's better is being known by God. And how we are known by God is shown by our love. And Paul continues in the next few verses and says, yes, you are absolutely right. There is no such thing as Zeus. There is no such thing as Aphrodite. But those idols still have a real sway. And I want to take a second to think about this in terms of us here in St. Pete. Most of us don't worship Zeus or Aphrodite. Um, I had a, a friend uh, when I managed a Starbucks, uh, one of the workers there at the Starbucks, he did worship Loki. Um, and this was like before Thor came out, before Loki was like cool. Um, but other than that, I've met very few people who actually worship like ancient gods, right? Most of us would number our friends who worship ancient gods in the very few. And yet... How many of us worship politics, worship political power? How many of us worship pleasure or success or other people's opinions about us? In reality, those things and things like them are the idols of our day. Now, let me ask you this. Is pleasure actually a god? No, it is not. But can it hold sway over you? Can it hold sway over me? Will it influence my decisions? Yeah, it will. The same with success. If success is what my life is pointed after, if that's what I am chasing, if that's what I'm daydreaming about, it's going to influence the way that I live. So it's not enough to know 
what idols are, it's not enough to know what even my idols are. Because that doesn't change me chasing after those things. What changes that is in my heart. It's my affections. It's what I really love. What Paul is showing us at the beginning of this passage is that God does not, when God measures a man, he doesn't put the tape around his head. He puts the tape around his heart. That the measure by which we are measured is not how much we know about God, or know about culture, or know about anything else. The measure is in our love for God and our love for others. And Paul's going to drive this point home even harder in the second half of this passage. Because Paul says, yeah, people at Corinth that know that Aphrodite isn't real and are fine eating any Aphrodite burgers they want, you're actually doing damage. Because he says that what you really need to be doing is loving others so much that you're willing to give up your rights for them. He says, if it causes one of your brothers or sisters to stumble, it'd be better that you didn't do it. Now here's the difficulty. Paul doesn't say, don't eat Aphrodite burgers. Right? What he does say is don't eat Aphrodite burgers if it's going to cause your brother to stumble, if it's going to affect their conscience. Because the way, as we mentioned before, that certain people, especially the poorer people in the church of Corinth, could only associate eating meat with pagan festivals, probably, no, really, you shouldn't be eating meat because those people can only associate that that you're worshiping Aphrodite. Paul says that you and I have to limit our freedom for the sake of others. Now, that was counterculture in his day, and that is wildly counterculture in our day. You need to limit your freedom for the sake of others. in my heart, that's what I say. I don't like that idea. I don't, I don't like the idea that I should not do some of the things that I want to do and that I'm morally able to do because of you. Right? When you think about that, when you begin to draw up scenarios where that might be the case, most of us have a little something inside of us, or a big something inside of us, that sort of starts to raise up and go, no. No, your conscience doesn't get to dictate my life. I 
am free to do what I want. And Paul says, no. No. When you begin to understand what Jesus has done for you, you will be willing to limit your freedom. To not do the things that you're free to do out of love for others. What is it, what is the thing about this that makes you go, no, I don't want to give that? I know for me, oftentimes, it's my time. I don't want to limit my time for your sake. You want my help? You get my help on my schedule. How about you? What is that thing that you want to hold back? Yeah, I'll limit my freedom in this area or that, but uh, you can't touch what I do here. Or maybe to ask it another way. What is the sin in other people that you can't tolerate? I can't be around this person because they... What? What's the thing that makes you step away from community with others? Ugh, this person is so blank. I wish this person wouldn't be here because of this. See, for most of us, we're unwilling to limit our freedom for the sake of others. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, look, if it's going to cause someone to violate their conscience, not, now, not if it's going to offend them. There's something different between something in your conscience and something that offends you. This is not, Paul's not saying, don't ever offend anyone. But he's talking about if something that you're doing is genuinely going to cause your brother or sister to fall back into an old way of life, then you need to limit your freedom. And Paul says that the onus is on those of us who don't have the weak conscience. He says, because when we trample over, when we trample over our brothers and sisters, he says, not only are we damaging their spiritual life, but we're also damaging our spiritual life. Paul wraps it in terms like this. Look, Jesus died for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you care so little about them as not being willing to limit some of your freedom, guess what you also functionally don't care about? You also functionally don't care about Jesus dying. interesting how Paul ends this passage. He finishes by saying, if it causes my brother to stumble, I just won't ever eat meat again. He says, no, I, not, even, not even worried about whether it's Aphrodite meat. I, I'll go vegetarian. How many of us are willing to make that level of sacrifice? Like, like how I love you but I don't know that I give up bacon for you. 
how many of us are in that same boat, right? I love you, but if you've ever had ribeye and a cast iron skillet, some garlic and rosemary, if we're honest, most of us are unwilling to limit our own personal freedom to love other people. But the good news is about this passage is that it points us to Jesus. When it mentions the fact that Jesus is the one who died for us, it is a vivid reminder that Jesus not only died for us, not only died for the ways that we are so cavalier about others, that we don't care about other people in our life. But it reminds us that He is the bread of heaven. That more than all of the food that we could buy, whether it's in the marketplace in Corinth or whether here in St. Pete, none of it satisfies like Jesus does. And so we're reminded of Jesus' death for people who are unwilling to limit their personal freedom like you. I'm like, and what happens when we begin to see our brokenness and yet see how much Jesus loves us? See that despite the fact that we, according to this passage, don't pass muster, despite that, Jesus loves us and continues to feed us and give us himself, just like we're going to experience in communion. What happens is it transforms us. The sacrificial love of Jesus, when we really begin to believe and understand it, makes us sacrificial lovers of other people. You see, city church, we will be measured as a community by how well we love people who are different from us. It's easy to love people who do all the same things easy to love people who have the same hobbies as us. No. The measure of us as a community is how well we are going to love people that are different from us. Now notice that onus is on you. We're not measured by how well other people love you. See, what our heart wants, what, what my heart wants to do with this with seeing the transformation of Jesus, is saying, why won't Jesus transform that person? That person doesn't love me well. That person doesn't do this. No, 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 no. That's, that's a trick. What we need to look and see is, how is Jesus going to transform me? So that I am loving, sacrificially loving, of people who are unwilling of people who are unwilling to necessarily always love God. That's hard. And yet the good news is that is exactly where Jesus is carrying us, his people. Let's pray.